Today we're going to pick up where we left off before Easter in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 is going to be quite a transitional chapter in the book of Acts. We've, we've seen it coming, uh, the persecution of the early church, and this is where the, the persecution uh, gets very, very serious, and from then on the church is going to have to, to react to it. And so Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, Stephen has been accused of some things in, in, chapter, in chapter 6. He was accused of committing blasphemy against Moses and God, of speaking against the temple and the law. And of course, he was also speaking about Jesus, which they had told him to stop doing, and it, he didn't, didn't really listen. So this is what, what we have at the beginning of Acts chapter 7. The high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true, the ones I just told you? Speaking blasphemy against Moses and God, speaking against the temple and the law, and speaking about Jesus. And this is how he replied. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. Stephen is going to mount a defense against those charges. So keep in mind that he's been accused of speaking blasphemy against Moses and God, and speaking against the temple and the law. Many people during this time period believed that God's presence was only found in the temple in Jerusalem. And Stephen is going to make a defense against the idea that God has forever and will always be uncontained, that he cannot be kept in one little place. And so when, when, when Stephen, throughout this process, and we'll go back and we'll look through it after I read it, I'm going to read this whole dialogue to you, then we'll go back and look at the details. Keep in mind that Stephen's making defense that God has always been everywhere, that God can't be contained to a building or a place. And so he begins in this section by saying, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. What's he saying? God wasn't in Jerusalem then. God wasn't just in this little area. God appeared to Abraham when Abraham wasn't here in this place. So he told him to leave your country, leave your people, and go to the land I will show you. And now Stephen's going to use the Old Testament as his defense. And hear what he says. Verse 4, so he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way, for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom, enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was. And Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent out for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. 
Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed, and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a, to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses that had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and delivered by God himself through the angel who had appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai with our ancestors. He received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. And for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and revealed in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings forty years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god Raphan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. He remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? 
Has not my hand made all things? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You will always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. It's quite a speech Stephen gives. We want to just go through it quickly. Remember, Stephen is being accused of committing blasphemy against Moses and God. Who does he speak an awful lot about in his defense? Moses. He tells us the story. He gives us a very detailed, very brief history of Israel, of God's people. Using the ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses as the main characters in that story. So right there, he already tells us that what he thinks about, about Moses. He's been accused of speaking out against the temple and the law. He uses the law as his guide as he leads us through his defense. And we're going to talk about what this problem they have with, with the temple is. We already talked about this section. He's trying to get them to understand that God had appeared in Mesopotamia. God had been somewhere besides Jerusalem. Look what happens in this next section in chapter, in chapter 7, verse 4 through 8. He tells us the story of Abraham leaving. And in verse 8, he talks about the covenant of circumcision. Reminding us about the covenant is the law. Remember, he's been accused of speaking ill against God, Moses, the temple, and the law. And Stephen is going to unpack essentially every one of those things and give his defense. So by the end of it, there is no way you could say that, that Stephen is saying anything bad about God, Moses, the temple, and the law. That's the goal, right, that Stephen has as he gives his defense. In verses 9 and 10, he tells us that the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph. They sold him as a slave into Egypt. So Joseph has now gone to Egypt, but look where God is in verse 10. Into verse 9 and 10. He sold as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him, which means God is not in Jerusalem, but in Egypt. Now God doesn't just, isn't just with him there. He tells us that God rescues him while he's there. So God has been in Mesopotamia so far, and now he's in Egypt, which tells us that God can't be contained just in Jerusalem. You see what Stephen's doing here. Look what he does. He tells us the story of the famine, of how Joseph's family gets there how they, God's people are now in Egypt, not in the promised land, not in Jerusalem, but they're in Egypt. And then in this next section, verse 17, 18, and 19, talks about the promise. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the promise was the covenant, what the law is going to be based on. He's reminding them and say, hey, wait, what do, you accused me of talking about about God, Moses, the temple, and the law. Let me remind you about this covenant, which is the beginning of the law. And then there's a section that we can't, we can't miss. It's not the main point of this section, but the fact that Stephen brings it up tells us something about what the Jewish 
people thought, thought and still felt about all these years later in verse 19. He talks about Pharaoh. Remember the story of Moses. Moses is born in the middle of a time in which the Pharaoh has grown, grown excuse me, very nervous about the Israelites. They've grown. Their population has, has begun to go. And remember, if, where they were located is in the north of Egypt. The, the Pharaoh's worried that if someone were to come down to try to conquer Egypt, that the Israelites would join them, wage war against Egypt, and they'd have all this calamity come upon them. And so if you remember, when Moses' birth, what is the Pharaoh decreed about little boys in Egypt that are Israelites? They're to be thrown in the river. This has a great, great impact on the Jewish people. Look at what the study Bible I have talks about verse 19 in this way. It says, Killing the babies of God's people remained a painful memory for the Jewish people, who had also suffered this oppression when they circumcised babies in the time of the evil ruler Antichius IV Epiphanes. Greeks and many ancient peoples, except Jews and Egyptians, sometimes abandoned babies. Usually the babies were either adopted by passerbys as children or slaves, or were eaten by vultures or dogs. Jews strongly opposed such behavior by pagans, so Pharaoh's behavior in Exodus remained a relevant and painful issue for them. After all these generations later, Stephen brings up in verse 19 something that is still breaking the heart of the Jewish people. And Pharaoh forced them to throw their baby boys into the Nile River. We can't talk about verse 19 and talk about the fact that in 2015, 638,169 babies were aborted in this country based on CDC's information. God's people's hearts have always broke when the most innocent among us are taken doesn't mean that God can't restore and renew those who have had an abortion. God can. He can forgive all things. But as Christians, there's sometimes we have to stand up and quit being quiet and silent about some things. And if we can't stand up for the unborn, who can we stand up for? The Jewish people were pained by this thousands of years ago. And you and I should be pained by it still to this day cannot remain silent when it comes to defending those who can't defend themselves. We have to speak on their behalf. He continues in his defense, verse 20 through 22. At that time, Moses was born. What's he telling us? Remember, the accusation against him was that he disrespected, he spoke blasphemous against God and Moses. And there we see him, Stephen, going on quite a long adventure here through the life of Moses, do we not? Which he's reminding them, I, I haven't said anything about it. Matter of fact, let me tell you about Moses. Now remember, he's speaking to the Sanhedrin. These are people who are experts in the book. They're supposed to be, right? They know the book. They've got the Old Testament. That's all they had at that point. They have it down. They know it. They know it well. And Stephen is giving them a lecture on the Old Testament. Now just think about it for a second. These people are supposed to be experts in the law. And Stephen is lecturing them 
on what's in the law. How do you think that makes them feel? Anytime we let our ego get in the way of things, we get in trouble. And what you're going to see here is, is a huge example of ego. Of ego. These people, they know this story. They've heard it a time or two, right? They know it. And Stephen, by telling it to them again, but doing it in the way he is, is trying to get a point across. And he's trying to say that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses were leading to this moment of death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, who is the Messiah. That's Stephen's point. And I think they're catching on while he's speaking that that's where he's going. And you can imagine the restlessness in his audience as they get lectured on things that they are supposed to already, already know. Let's jump to verse 30 through 32 and look what Stephen does here. Remember, he's reminding them that God cannot be found just in a, in a building in a, in a city. He's telling the story of Moses. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai is a very holy place in the Jewish people. This is where the law is going to be given. But is Mount Sinai in Jerusalem? No, it's not. What is he reminding them? Mesopotamia, Egypt, Mount Sinai. Where can God be found? Stephen's answer would be everywhere. To many of the people he's speaking to, it's, well, no, he's, his, his presence is really, no, it's just here in this one building, in this one city. It's in the temple in Jerusalem. And Stephen's saying, no, it's not, and no, it has never been that way. Remember, he was, taught, he was told, accused of, being, of speaking blasphemous against God. What does he say in verse 32? He, he gives us the story of the Exodus. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, reminding them, hey, your God is my God. I'm not speaking anything ill or bad about him. And look what happens in verse 33. To drive the point home that God can be found anywhere, remember, the temple is considered a holy place. It's set apart. It's special. That's what holy means, right? What does the angel tell Moses in the, in, the, in the story we find in Exodus? He tells us in verse 33, And the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals to Moses, for the place where you are standing is it's holy ground. He's driving the point home even harder. Remember that story that you all know so well about ground being holy? Well, where Moses took his sandals off wasn't Jerusalem in the temple. It was in the middle of nowhere. Somewhere near Mount Sinai. And what made that land holy? It was God's presence. And Stephen's argument is anywhere the presence of God is, you have a place that is holy. They're pointing to this one building, the temple in Jerusalem. And Stephen, I would, say, I would guess, probably wouldn't disagree. Yeah, that's a, that's a holy place, absolutely. But there's holy places all around. Because God cannot be contained. He just can't be. God's too great and too big to be contained. He reminds us in verse 38 that God was also with the Israelites as they marched through the wilderness, that his presence was with them. Look what he says in verse 37 and 38. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. Who do you think Stephen is referencing there? 
He's saying, not only do I think Moses is a great man, I think Moses is pretty smart. Matter of fact, I think Moses talked about this Jesus guy. That's what he's doing in verse 37, and they know it. It says, this Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people, Jesus. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. What's he saying? That angel didn't stop at Mount Sinai. He didn't stop at the burning bush. But God's presence was with them all throughout the wilderness, all throughout their wanderings, all throughout their unfaithfulness. God was still there. He received living words to pass on to us. Stephen making a case that he, he believes Moses, God, the temple, the law are all important things and that they're all pointing to this Jesus. And then he gives us an example of what he's being accused of. Stephen is being accused of committing blasphemy against God. He says, remember that time when you and your ancestors were actually guilty of blasphemy against God. He tells us this story, the golden calf. Verse 39, but our ancestors refused to obey him, God. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was a time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. Stephen gives them an example. Remember blasphemy, what it looks like in flesh and blood? Stephen's saying, well, you should know the book, right? Remember what blasphemy actually looks like? Now, I believe Stephen's telling the story on purpose, but I also believe that his tongue is firmly planted in his cheek as he says, now, you're accusing me of committing blasphemy against God, but your people, our people, Stephen would say, actually did commit blasphemy, and this is what it looked like. I think Stephen's argument would be, show me where I've done this. Because here's proof of actual blasphemy, of actually building an idol, of actually worshiping something that isn't God. Here's an example of it. You prove that I've done the same, and then we can have this conversation. Now, can they prove that? Of course not. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. His, his case is the Israelites actually did go out and worship something different. They worshiped the creation instead of the creator. His case, of course, is that he cannot be accused of the same. And here, in verse 48 and 50, Stephen reaches the pinnacle of his debate. He's been showing it to them the entire time that God can't be contained. And so what he decides to do is quote Scripture to prove his case. And he says in verse 48, However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. What's the temple in Jerusalem? It's a beautiful building if you've ever seen an artist's recreation of it. Very beautiful building. But what was it? It's a, it's a building made by what? By human hands. No matter how beautiful the building is, every bu- building that you've ever been in has been mated, mated, that's not a word, has been made by human hands. Been created by us, by people. Every building you've ever walked into, including this one, is a creation of, of people. The Scripture tells us, in Psalm, and we have it quoted here for us by Stephen, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? 
or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? God reminding his people that the stuff you're using is, belongs to me in the first place. Right? God's saying, that tree you cut down, that two by four, that's my tree. I made that tree. That's not your tree. I made the tree. Those rocks you're using, I put them there. That cement you're mixing, all those ingredients, that's mine. It belongs to me. Stephen does a great job of showing our, our arrogance, doesn't he? That we somehow think that we are so great. And you go downtown anywhere, San Francisco, New York City, Chicago, you see these skyscrapers and you think, man, how that engineering that goes in that, the, the mind that thought that building up. And then you go to the mountains and you think, never mind. You go to the ocean and you think, never mind, God, my bad. I'm sorry, I apologize, I repent. Because your creation is far greater than anything we've ever made. Because it all belongs to God in the first place. And Stephen's trying to remind them that you, we can't, we as human beings cannot contain our God. That you can't stuff him in a building and say you have to come to this building to meet him because our God is way too great, too majestic, and too powerful for that. But Stephen's not done. And I think 48 on is the reason that you're going to see what happens to him in the end. Stephen says, looking at the Sanhedrin, those who are supposed to be in charge of him, supposed to be the religious leaders of his time and place, he says, you stiff-necked people, taking that straight from the Old Testament, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. Whew. If you want to get yourself killed, this is a great, great speech to make. Because that's what you, you guys know. It's a spoiler alert, right? That's what's going to happen here. But what does he do? He says, you've accused me of speaking ill against Moses and God of the temple, of all these things. And yet it's you who's the real problem. Stephen has some courage, doesn't he? He says the things that we often aren't quite willing or brave enough to say, and he says them right to their face. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about this. He stands toe-to-toe and says, it's you. You're, you're blaming me. You're saying, I'm the problem. I think it's actually you. You're the problem, and you're just like your ancestors who we read about, who missed the point time and time again. And if you've read the Old Testament through, and I know it can be difficult, if you get through Leviticus, you're almost there, right? Whew, that one's hard, and Numbers. If you've read the Old Testament, you know there's a pattern that we find in the Old Testament. God's people are faithful for a while. Then what happens? They stray away and they chase after some other God who's useless and pointless. And then then God sends a leader, a prophet, someone to bring them back, right, to repentance. And they repent and they say, okay, God, we're good. And that that goes on for a little while. Then what happens? And they go right, and it's a cycle of constantly of God's people missing the point, of losing focus, and chasing after other things, and then coming back to God, and then chasing after other things, and then coming back to Him. And I think Stephen's accusing them of the same thing. He says, You think you're chasing after God, you've missed it. God's moved on, He's onto something new, and you're standing in the same old place, thinking the same old things. And if you would have just read the book, you would know. And remember, these are the people who are the experts in the law, and so they don't take kindly to Stephen's words. Verse 52, excuse me, at the very end of it, he accuses them of betraying and killing God's anointed one. 
Messiah, which they, they had a hand in, didn't they? And remember, they accused him of talking ill about the law, and how does he finish his speech in verse 53? You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. They took the law very serious. Very serious. And Stephen's claim to them, his accusation against them, he said, while we're making accusations, while you're going to accuse people of things, let me make some of my own. I believe you've received the law. You have it. You have it there before you, and you're not following it. You're not obedient. And it's not going to be a surprise of what happens in verse 54 on. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They didn't take kindly to his words. And the story is going to end like this. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Fell asleep is a nice way of saying he died. He's dragged outside of town and they throw rocks at him, at his head, literally until he can speak no more. But while they're doing that, he's praying to God that God might forgive them. Stephen is the example of someone who is faithful to the very end. And he's the first of many. We'll see throughout the book of Acts and we'll talk about many who have to pay the ultimate price for following this Jesus. There are people just like Stephen on planet earth today who are paying the price, the ultimate price, for their faith in Jesus. You and I are so fortunate and are so lucky that it is not us. So I would ask you to lift our brothers and sisters around the world up in prayer constantly who are facing the same persecution that Stephen faced, who are being killed because of their belief in this risen Jesus, and who are faithful to the very end. Verse 58, we'll end on this. Introducing us to a character who you're going to see becomes the main character of the book of Acts. They've dragged Stephen out of the city, and as they begin to stone him, there's a witness there, someone who's watching this happen, apparently watching it, well, not apparently, we know from the rest of the book of Acts, who's, who's watching it and nodding along approvingly. And his name is Saul. You know him as Paul. And this dude is a real jerk. He is. You're going to, don't take, I promise, next week and the week after, you'll see. He's all for killing these new people, these people who are chasing after this Jesus, until God gets a hold of him. And you're going to see one of the greatest stories of repentance and transformation that you will ever see 
in all the world. So remember that you saw it first here in verse 58 of this Saul who's standing there nodding along as this poor Stephen is killed. Innocent. As his his innocent blood is being shed, Saul is standing there going, yep, no, this is good, this is right, this is holy, and this is pure. Because the Bible has this really funny way of of just when we're going to give up on someone, of just when we think to ourselves, that person couldn't get any worse. God does something with that person. We should give, you and I hope, and no matter how down we've ever been, no matter how far rock bottom was, no matter the choices that we've made in life, and we've made a few poor ones, I'm just speaking for myself, I don't want to speak for you, that God hasn't given up on us yet. Because our God just never gives up on us. He's always there. Remember, Stephen's point of his speech was God cannot be contained to a place, to a building, to a certain... That God is, is everywhere. And he, in his infinite wisdom and love, refuses to give up on us sinners that we are. Bruce read it this morning. It was out of order, but we read it, right, Bruce? That God loved us, even though we were opposed to him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Saul, that's going to become, we're going to see it played out in flesh and blood. Because he's actually the one who wrote those words, actually. He knows it firsthand. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the... uh, the witness of Stephen, his faithfulness to you despite having to pay his life, to give his life for, your, for his faith that was placed wholly and completely in you. God, we just ask that you would be with our brothers and sisters around the world who, like Stephen, are facing persecution or being, having their life threatened every day. We ask that you would be with them, that you would comfort them, that you would keep them safe in your hands. We pray for the governments and the people who are persecuting them that you would help them to see the air of their ways, that they would change and they would would quit killing and persecuting our brothers and sisters. Father, we just ask that you would move in our midst, God, that your Holy Spirit would be at work here today and every day. God, we know that this, this earth can't keep you and can't continue, that you're too big for it, that you created it, that you are our mighty and majestic, God you are everywhere and can see everything and yet you choose you choose to love us in spite of our imperfections in spite of the flaws in spite of all the skeletons in the closet God you choose to love us we're so thankful for your, that you sent your son to this earth to live a sinless and perfect life and to offer himself as that sacrifice on our behalf to give us life true life with you here and life with you everlasting God we thank you We praise you and we pray all this in the powerful and healing name of your son Jesus and all God's people said.